I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23 today. Actually, we'll look at a few verses right at the end of Genesis 22 and then spend the rest of the day in Genesis chapter 23. It's good to be back with you again and to be able to uh, open up God's Word with you uh, in our study of the book of Genesis. Last week was a special treat for me. I love Genesis 22 uh, in the, the passage about Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. For me, it was one of my favorite sermon texts to work through in the last year or so. Uh, and so uh, God's still using it in my heart. I hope it's encouraging to you as well uh, that that text was a, a source of blessing. Uh, because in that story, that text points forward, doesn't it? These embedded clues that point forward to a greater sacrifice that God our Heavenly Father would make regarding the sacrifice of his only beloved son, Jesus Christ, for the sins of this world. And I hope that that's encouraging to you because it, it, it informs your view of God. informs your view of God and that it uh, really challenges you to know that uh, our God is sacrificial and loving and gracious and, and kind. Now, Moses arranged the whole book of Genesis very neatly. It's been a while since I talked to you about this. Remember, it's all built off of these statements that he repeats throughout the book that divide out the different sections. They're normally translated uh, by English translations with the phrase, this is the generation of, and then you fill in the blank. Okay. Well, we've been working through the longest of those sections, which is about Abraham. It's a big, healthy chunk of material right in the middle of the book of Genesis. And uh, we have come to the close of the Abrahamic narratives or stories. Don't you wonder how the author Moses is going to wrap up this major section about Abraham? Perhaps if you're not too familiar with Genesis 22 through 25, you might think that, okay, how are we going to end the story? Maybe some amazing battle or something as Abraham's elderly, and he just comes from behind, or Maybe some profound words of wisdom on his deathbed. Maybe that's how Moses will wrap this up. Or perhaps some miraculous victory over the Canaanites so that Abraham and Isaac can get the land. That might be how Hollywood would end it. That might be the end of the Marvel movie if it was given about this narrative. But that's not what Moses does. What does he do? How does it end? Well, the closing, the concluding act of Abraham's story does take place over four chapters. He goes on and on for basically four chapters, from the end of Genesis 22 to the middle of Genesis 25. Yet two of the three scenes of this final or concluding act aren't very glorious at all. Chapters 23 and 25. Okay, and what you're going to find at the, uh, really at the end of 22 into 23, and then in chapter 25, is they're going to, these two scenes are going to be very similar. They're going to have a genealogy and a death report. How does that sound? Right? Sound encouraging, right? Genealogy, do you know what those are? <laughs> we read those. It's what we skip over because we can't pronounce the names. Genealogy, death report. Okay? In Genesis 23, well, the death report of Sarah and in Genesis chapter 25, the death report of Abraham himself. So today, we're going to look at the first scene. We're going to have a sermon over the genealogy and first death report. 
And compared to the significance of Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah and the ram being provided, Genesis 23 might seem a bit trivial to us. But we know better, right? We know this, is, this book comes from our holy God. And every portion of it is important. This is why we go text after text after text. And so we're going to look at the genealogy and the death report here and uh, we're going to focus today uh, on the, the burial of Sarah. I think you'll find this text important because it instructs us on how we bury our dead. Yesterday, I preached a wedding. Today, I preach a funeral. Or a sermon about a funeral. Especially, I think, a sermon that will prepare us for our own funerals. And so uh, let's look at the beginning of the final act of Abraham's story, uh, scene number one. As we come to this scene, we find a peculiar little text intruding between a high point, the ram being a substitute, and the low point, Sarah's death. It's a genealogy. Look Look with me at Genesis 22, verse 20. After these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Use uh, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Gehem, Tahash, and Mekah. I'm so glad that's done practiced that all morning, and I still messed it up. (laughs) In these verses, Moses has someone informing Abraham that his brother Nahor had 12 sons by a wife and a concubine. If you remember years before this, Abraham obeyed God, and he left his family and hometown. Perhaps he's lost track of his brother Nahor and exactly what's going on. So someone informs him that he's had 12 sons. These are nephews of Abraham. And we, we learn of only one of the next generation. It only goes one level. It doesn't, the genealogy is linear. It doesn't go, it's not segmented. It doesn't go down. The only person we learn of the second generation is a woman, Rebecca. Now, the reader might just be reading through Genesis at this point and wonder what in the world is the genealogy doing here. But we know that one of the reasons this is put here is because it introduces us to a woman who will become very important in the next chapter not only in the close of the Abraham story, but in the beginning of the next one. Rebecca, the son of Bethuel. I'll say more about her next week. And having transitioned from the high point of Genesis 22, about God's deliverance of Isaac, we we move to the lows of Genesis 23, and we come to a text about death. This all starts with the weeping and the mourning of Abraham in verses 1 and 2. So I want you to start there. I I divide Genesis 23 up into three parts if you're trying to take notes. So this is number one, uh, the mourning of Abraham. Look at verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of, of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, In the land of Canaan, and Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. At the beginning of this chapter, we come to this just stark, sad, somber scene. 
Here, Sarah dies at the age of 127. She's the only woman in all the Bible who's given her age for how long she lives before she dies. She's a significant figure. And the picture we get here, the focus primarily at the beginning, is upon Abraham's solitary grief. The way Moses portrays it, no one else is here to sorrow with him. For instance, we don't know where Isaac is at this point. He might be around, but, it, but, but Moses isn't really talking about that here. The picture is of Abraham all by himself, alone grieving and weeping. Mourning and weeping. Death brings grief for him. I'm sure their long life together had ended, and this was quite difficult for him. But we're not really given much more about that with Abraham, and the weeping and the mourning that he experiences. I was moved this week, I was reading a book on heaven called Heaven Revealed, and the author is a well-known theologian and writer, his name is Paul Enns, and in his opening to this book, he gives his own story, and I just want to read this to you a little bit, it's just a moving story, and I think it will help us maybe picture what Abraham must have been feeling. Paul N. said, after I'd parked the car, Helen and I walked into the sanctuary holding hands as we always did when we walked together. We'd been husband and wife for 45 years, yet I still felt like newly engaged young man, smitten with love and thrilled by holding hands with the one he loves. Our pastor, Ken Witten, became emotional and teary-eyed that Sunday evening as he spoke during the sermon of being with his father just before he died. Pastor Ken recalled how he told his father, I'll meet you at the Tree of Life. I leaned over to Helen and told her, I'll meet you at the Eastern Gate. She smiled and responded in agreement. After the service, we visited with numerous people, as Helen loved to do, and finally walked to the car hand in hand. I opened the door for her, and soon we were on our way home. I was unusually tired that evening and headed for bed ahead of Helen. When she came to bed, I was almost asleep, so I missed our nightly ritual. Before turning out the light, we would clasp hands and Helen would say, Good night, my treasure. I would respond, Good, good night, my little treasure. The next morning, as I was leaving the house to drive to Idaho Baptist Church to teach an extension seminary class, Helen walked me to the car, as she always did. She carried my mug of coffee, coffee took a few sips. She wasn't supposed to drink coffee since it made her heart act up, and then handed me the cup. She was wearing walking shorts. Go inside, it's too cold, I suggested, but I knew she wouldn't go in. Whenever I drove away, she would always wave me off. I backed out of the driveway. As I drove away, she blew me some kisses and then waved to me. She was now in the street and continued to wave until I turned the corner at the far end of the street. Our love was simple and sincere. We never got over the thrill, the joy, the love that we had for each other. That morning as I taught about the bodily resurrection of Christ, I became emotional and began to cry. I couldn't explain it. At 2 o'clock, I finished teaching the class, but stayed for another half hour talking to the students. I arrived home at 2.45 p.m. to find the door was locked. That was unusual, since Helen would always unlock the door when she knew I was coming home. I unlocked the door and entered the house. Helen, I called. No answer. I called louder. Helen? Still no answer. She must be working outside, I told myself. I put down my briefcase and walked into the kitchen. I screamed as I saw Helen lying face down on the kitchen floor. I ran to her, turned her over, but there was no movement. Helen, Helen, I shouted. For over an hour, the EMS sought to revive Helen. Finally, they came to me and said, we could take her to the hospital, but the line is flat. She's gone. 
Words are incapable of describing my emotion at that moment. My beloved Helen was gone. I couldn't begin to fathom that actually happened. Helen gone. I couldn't fathom it. It's not true. It can't be. I'd never gotten over the thrill of Helen. From the moment I laid my eyes on her smiling face and happy eyes, I was captivated by her. I've told people I was on a 45-year honeymoon. Now she was gone. That singular event has changed my life and my thinking. My thoughts are constantly focused on heaven. I'm absorbed with the thought of heaven, the thought of reunion with my beloved Helen. He says more, but can you imagine the grief that Abraham must have experienced? Many of you know of this grief. You know of this grief. You've had to bury a loved one. Someone who's near to you, your parents, children, your spouse. Might the promises of heaven encourage you today? And I can't help but think that the greatest promise of heaven that should encourage us is the, the reality of seeing Jesus face to face. Well, Abraham's mourning here in verses 1 and 2 give way to a new pursuit of his in verses 3 through 18. And it's interesting how Moses does this. He gives us these verses about a negotiation regarding a land plot. So look with me in your Bible at verse 3. It says, And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing, I should bury my dead out of my sight. Hear me and entreat me uh, for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. Is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abram in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of a city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you, if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham waited out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. All right, so I said I divide this text up into three parts. Number one was his mourning, that was verses one and two. And then number two is the negotiation, verses three through 18. Big section here. As we come to these verses, we observe this ancient negotiation regarding the, the purchase of a burial plot. At the beginning of this passage, we learn just how desperate and vulnerable Abraham feels. Right? The, we can get a sense for the weight and the pressure 
that he has to properly care for his deceased loved one. I can see that in different ways in the text. Did, did you notice how many times Abraham and the people around him described Sarah as his dead? Like, so for instance, in verse 3, he mourns his dead. And in verse 8, uh, he feels the obligation to bury his dead. And again, Ephraim mentions this twice as well. You're dead. Bury your dead. When someone passes away today, the next of kin normally feel the responsibility to make sure that the deceased are properly cared for. In ancient times, for, for Abraham, I think that that pressure may have been even more severe, and there are a few reasons for it. One is, this is a fight against time for him. He does not have long to do this. He's mourned her, he's wept over here and her, and now he feels a real obligation to take care of the matter quickly. No doubt this pressure intensified exponentially for Abraham because uh, to this point he has no place to bury her because he's a nomad, right? He is a stranger and a traveler in this world. And so as you start into this narrative, feeling the pressure, Abraham looks for a burial place and he goes into the city and he does so by engaging in three discourses with these people the people of the city of Hebron, these Hittites. He engages in three discourses, three speeches with them at the gate of the city. Now, Hebron is, is a city that is in the middle of the future promised land. It is directly in between the city of Jerusalem and Beersheba in the south, because it's right in the promised land. And so with that background in mind, let's just kind of pass through his conversation here to make sense of it. The first stage of the conversation, uh, or conversation comes with a request that he makes to the Hittites in verses 3 through 6. Abraham here is desperate, so he honestly, I think, just lays out his needs before them. Again, he's a stranger and a foreigner in a, in a strange land. If you've ever traveled before to a different country and you've experienced those feelings of being out of your own norm at the uh, uh, the wishes of the people around you at their, at their dis, you know, disposal. That's how Abraham must feel here. Abraham feels like an outsider in a foreign land dependent on the natural inhabitants of this land to help him. Not to mention, as one Old Testament scholar, Bruce Walke, uh, mentions, he encounters, uh, and this is what Walke says, he encounters the per pervasive reluctance of landowners in the ancient Near Eastern world to part with their property. Okay, so what Walke is able to demonstrate is, like, people in the ancient Near East, they really didn't want to ever give up their land. And so Abraham's in this difficult spot, yet the Hittites offer to, make an offer to him that appears to be very generous, right? They say they will let him use any of their burial tombs. Use any of them. Now, that is a, a generous offer, but that might also be a deflection, and I think it is a deflection. They don't really want to sell him a cave. And so they, give him, they would give to him a rental of sorts, but this arrangement would not work for Abraham. I think because he would have no guarantee that Sarah would have a peaceful place permanently, and he wouldn't perhaps even have access to it the way he would like to in the future. And so that leads to the second stage in the conversation, the second dialogue, where Abraham politely refuses 
the free gift, and asked to buy a specific cave in verses 7 through 11. He asked for them to contact Ephron because he wants to purchase the cave of Machpelah for a burial tomb. Okay. And that's when the story gets kind of interesting here because what we find out is Ephron is actually one of the people he's talking to. I don't know if he knows that or not, but you know, I can imagine Ephron's ears kind of perking up here. Aha, you want my cave. You want to talk to me about this. Uh, that leads Ephron to respond by saying that he will give Abraham the field, uh, the cave and the field that surrounds it. Seems, however, that this might be a courteous way for Ephron to show his willingness to sell the cave, but only if the field goes with it, driving up the price. This might be a way for Ephron to discourage Abraham from his thoughts of buying something for her. So in the third stage, Abraham refuses this new free gift from Ephron, the field in the cave, and pleads for the opportunity to buy it from him at fair market value in verses 12 and 13, which gives Ephron the opportunity to work into the conversation the value that he places on it. That, well, you know, it's 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Barry, you're dead. Now, it's debatable about whether this is a good deal or not. If you're reading among the commentaries, you know, there's, they're kind of mixed. But most would say this is not a good deal. This is either a bad deal or an extremely valuable piece of property that Abraham has chosen. Now, when you hear this, you might think 400 uh, pieces of sh- shekels of silver, what's the big deal? 400 coins. You just like count them out or whatever. Uh, But you need to know a little bit of of background here to understand what's going on here. 400 shekels. Shekels at this time was not a coin, it's a weight. So he's going to be weighing in scales, according to the merchant scales, 400 shekels of silver. And then if you do your research in ancient times, you realize that a, a normal day laborer during this time would make the value of about 10 shekels of silver in one year. So the price is about 40 years' salary for a normal day laborer. Regardless of the price, Abraham does not haggle here. Doesn't debate. He just begins counting the money, and he he weighs it out so that he can buy the field and the cave of Machpelah in the presence of these witnesses. This will secure the fact that he is a place for Sarah to be buried now, just a little note on Machpelah that might be interesting to you, and you can, you can Google this, you can look up pictures of this. Uh, this is a very important place for both uh, Muslim and um, Hebrew uh, people today. Uh, the cave of Machpelah uh, literally means double cave or split cave, and although Abraham bought this field maybe something like 4,000 years ago, archaeologists believe that they found the cave underneath of a building that's 2,000 years old. Okay, this building several hundred years ago was set up as a Muslim mosque, and so it's been a matter of much contention and debate for the people. To this day, the Jews just only have limited access to it, although it's a very important religious site for them, because not only is Sarah buried there, but Abraham and many of the patriarchs after them. 
Now, I want you to think of the significance of this cave for Abraham for a moment, though. And I think this is what Moses wants to emphasize in the chapter. He wants to emphasize the acquisition of the land. Again, we might give more attention to the mourning and the weeping of Abraham at the loss of Sarah. We might weave into our version of the story the events around Sarah's death, the cause of her death, the conditions for her as she declined. But that's not what the biblical author is interested in here. So how do you know that? Well, just look at it. He gives two verses about the death of Sarah in the morning of Abraham. He gives 16 to the negotiation. But as you're reading as an alert reader, you come to this part of Genesis, like, well, what's the point? Is it to, like, learn business practices? Yeah, learn how to barter better? I'm going to say to that, no, that's not the point. I actually saw a few well, one of the commentaries trying to do that and make that. I'm like, that's, that's not about business practices. This is about Abraham acquiring, beginning to acquire the promised land. This is his first and only possession of the land promised to him and his seed. It's beginning. Yet I want you to imagine how empty that could feel for Abraham. Put yourself in his position. God had promised Abraham and his seed a land to call their own. And this is his only acquisition that he secures in his lifetime and at such a high personal cost. Abraham could have become bitter and resentful to God. I mean, Abraham had done so much, right? He sacrificed so much. He obeyed promptly. He left his homeland. He obeyed completely. He was willing to give up his own son Isaac if necessary. Abraham trusted God through trials for over a hundred years, and this is what he gets. Yet Abraham was not moved or driven by earthly fulfillment and earthly vindication or reward. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that later. You remember Hebrews 11 about Abraham? I want to read to you just a few of the verses about Abraham because I think it's insightful for us, and I'll tell you why in a second. Listen to these verses about Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, Living in tents. That's Abraham's experience, right? Living in tents. With Isaac and Jacob. Heirs. He's an heir of what? He's got to buy the only piece of land he gets. He could become bitter, but he doesn't. Why? For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Think of Abraham. He didn't get much, but he was driven by the heavenly city. And men and women, we won't get many of the fulfillments of God's promises in this world either. 
Unless Jesus returns, we will all die in faith, waiting for fulfillment that only comes when we cross the river of death and the grave and meet the object, right? The very object of our desire, Jesus. That's when we get true acquisition. We get Christ. Gospel being fulfilled as the means of our salvation. I think Abraham's a good example here. Going by faith, looking forward to the heavenly. Well, the negotiation is done. Abraham owns the land. He's got it. He purchased it. 400 pieces of 400 shekels of silver. The pressure is perhaps off, and all that is left is the final burial of Sarah. Look at verses 19 and 20. After this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So instead of taking Sarah and taking her back to his homeland where he was from, Haran, he decides to buy this cave in Hebron, the land of Cana, and put her to rest there. Now, this is quite important because it breaks with an ancestral tradition for Abraham regarding his, himself and his family. I think it's quite significant here for Abraham to move away and then for him or his wife to be buried in a place far away from his ancestors. Now, in our modern context in America today, we don't think as much of this as even we used to just a few generations ago, about being buried near our extended relatives. I don't know if you've ever done any online research into your uh, own genealogy. Okay. Uh, I admit I like to do it just a little bit, which maybe marks me as being old. It's like that commercial where you're becoming your parents, right? Uh, matter of fact, on one of our vacations recently, I kind of got into this. I think my kids are just looking around like, what? What in the world's wrong with dad? Like, why is he doing all this? Like, telling them where my great, 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 great grandfather's buried, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I like to see how far back our family roots go, how far back I can trace them. One of the things I noticed about my, my own family on both sides, my grandparents, my great, great grandparents, and everything in between. Going back probably about five generations is that uh, most of my ancestors are, are buried in the same county in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, the name of the county is Indiana County. Uh, maybe we could go and do a tour sometime if you'd like to. <laughs> back a few generations ago, even in our own country, many people did not move far away from their family roots. We've lost much of that in our world today, and we don't normally feel much pressure to be buried where our ancestors were, but I'm sure Abraham did. Being buried near his ancestors back in his homeland was a way to honor them and express continuity with his family. I know they felt this because later on his own grandson will feel this. Flip over to Genesis 49 for a second. Genesis 49. Abraham begets Isaac, and later on Isaac begets Jacob. We're going to read about Jacob when he's dying and what he feels. Genesis 49, 
and verse 29. It says, Then he, that's Jacob, commanded them and said to them, this is Jacob talking to his sons. Middle verse 29. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were brought, uh, bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Here Jacob is in Egypt, miles away from the promised land and his descendants. Yet Jacob makes his son promise to take his remains back to Machpelah so he could express honor to his family and continuity with the line there. Even Joseph, in the next chapter, Jacob's son dies in Egypt, and he makes his sons take an oath to carry his bones out of Egypt. Remember that? Yet Abraham, backing up to Abraham, breaks the tradition. He does not return Sarah's body to Haran, but he buys this cave in Canaan, I believe, as an act of faith. He knows that the future of his family will be in this place. And by burying this land, it will become an anchor of sorts for Abraham and his descendants. Their future will be in this land. Alan Ross says it well. He said, Sarah's death provided another situation in which Abraham's faith could operate. This burial of Sarah speaks of Abraham's faith. The way I'd say it is this. The covenant promises of God were an important stimulus to Abraham's faith even in the moment of the loss of his wife. Now, in our own way, our funerals can be a great statement of our faith in Jesus Christ. The covenant promises of God uh, to us through Jesus are an important stimulus to our faith as well. How we handle death can be informed, I believe should be informed, by the great hope that we have that God has promised us through Jesus Christ our Lord. One preacher, when talking about the significance of a Christian death, a Christian funeral, he said it this way. He said, faith shines most brightly next to the grave. Faith shines most brightly next to the grave. The time of death for Christian should be the time of our greatest demonstration of faith, for we are the recipients of God's promises that extend far beyond the grave. I don't know if it's your normal practice to attend the funeral, the funerals of other members of our church when we celebrate their life. But I suggest to you that these are tremendous opportunities for us. These are tremendous opportunities for us, not only to celebrate the life that God has given to us, but to look in the face of death with unflinching faith and know that they are experiencing the fulfillment of the promises that we have through Christ. Funerals can be a powerful tribute to faith. 
And they're an amazing opportunity for the gospel. So won't you pray with me that we as a congregation might demonstrate faith in our funerals based on the promises that we have in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to work through this text of Scripture together. It's a text that seems to be less significant, but yet it can inform us. Thank you for Abraham's faith that even in his grieving, he, he works, he labors to buy a field in the land of promise. Thank you, Lord, for his forward look for a city who had foundations whose builder and maker was God. Thank you for his forward look to a heavenly country, a heavenly city, where he would finally have the acquisition that he longed for. And Lord, I pray that this study of Abraham's life and Abraham's faith would inform our own lives as we consider the fact that unless you return, all of us, all of us will die in faith without the fulfillment of many of your promises. And so, Lord, sustain us, strengthen us. And for my brothers and sisters in this room who have walked through these waters with a loved one in the last few weeks and months, I pray that you would give them great faith. I pray that you would allow them more delight in heaven. I pray that it would be burned upon their conscience. It would help and sustain them throughout their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we close in a song.